I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild. A show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Hello, everyone. Uh, From time to time here on Wild, I like to share a fun episode where I've been interviewed over at another podcast platform. So recently, the podcast Intelligence Squared asked me to lead a discussion with English author and journalist Oliver Berkman. Intelligence Squared happens to be one of my favourite podcast channels. It's a British podcast that sees public intellectuals, politicians, authors and philosophers discuss the big issues of the day, sometimes as an in-conversation and at other times as a debate around a contentious idea. And Oliver happens to be one of my favourite writers. We were invited on to discuss our scepticism around the self-help industry, but our chat meanders out from there. It was a fun experience and I hope you enjoy it. We will return to the Ask Me Anything format again next week, so keep posting your questions over at Substack. That's sarahwilson.substack.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event, The Skeptic's Guide to Self-Help. And my conversational sparring partner this evening is Oliver Berkman. Oliver wrote the anti-self-help self-help column. This column will change your life. Some of you may recall it for The Guardian for 10 years. During this time, he investigated pretty much every productivity hack, mindfulness trick, happiness boost we've ever been fed, and wonderfully, to my relief at least, he concluded almost none of them work. He has published three books, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done, and most recently he published the hugely popular 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Um, And this book has actually been on the New York Times bestseller list for over 10 weeks, and I think the rights, the international rights, are with uh, 20 different territories. So uh, I'm sure many of you have read the book by now, and uh, he'll be feeding some of the content from that into this conversation this evening. Now, Tonight's event is going to run for about an hour. Uh, For the first 45 minutes or so, Oliver and I will be in conversation, and then I'm going to be taking your questions. If you have a question, post it as we go. You can start posting them now. Uh, Clicking on the Ask Question button under the video screen and type in your question there. If you want your name to be mentioned, type it into the box. You don't have to. Then press Send. The other thing I'll just add to all of this is that you are welcome to tweet um, tweet to us uh, using the hashtag, hashtag IQ2. Okay, so Oliver, welcome. It's great to join you here once again. We've we've interacted a couple of times over the yeah. years, yeah, in, in this space, in this wellness self-help kind of space. And I might kick off by um, getting you to explain how you wound up in the self-help realm. I think it was around about the same time that I did. We were living parallel lives on the opposite side of the world. Let's get to your story first, how you wound up writing your column and what was the interest in this topic at the time? Yeah, well, I'm really happy to be here having this conversation and thanks everyone who's uh, who's joining us. Um, I mean, the sort of surface level story, uh, the professional 
job level story of how I came to be sort of writing that that column, uh, which I did for quite a lot more than ten years. I think I, I actually realise now it's it's uh, terrifying. Anyway, um, was just that I was I was reading all these books myself, and my then editor at the Guardian Weekend magazine uh, cannily realised that she could get some copy out of me uh, about it, given that I was already clearly uh, to be seen round the office reading books on time management and and productivity not so much at that point maybe spirituality and what gets called wellness today but that came came later so already there's this kind of slight problem in my interest which is that i sort of began that column being relatively sarcastic and maybe um more than skeptical maybe almost cynical about a lot of what i was writing about um and yet Clearly, I'd been very interested in it, like interested enough to to read it, and I think that that goes to the heart of my sort of engagement with it, which has always had that sort of double edge to it. And in many ways, the 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 journey of writing that column, in many ways, was just a kind of process of getting slightly less cynical, maybe even less skeptical. Um, I thought at first the fun thing would be sort of poking fun at all the terrible self help, and there's plenty of it. But it, actually, the really fun thing. Is suggesting to a typical Guardian reader that there might be something useful and practical or mind-expanding or peace of mind-inducing about what you might find uh, shelved under under self-help in a bookstore. So in many ways, that was what I did. At the same time, of course, you know, you get to test out a hundred different productivity systems and systems of, you know, designed to make you have happier and more pleasant days and there's something very beneficial about testing out so many because you 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 get to the bottom of the barrel right i mean you get to the point where oh well if i've done this if i tried a hundred of these and none of them have worked maybe that tells me something interesting about the nature of the the journey that i'm on rather than just that uh you know i haven't found mm. the right one yet somebody with a more um you know a more useful job to society than than, than me might have only have time to try out three or four and therefore you might think that the real one was just around the corner but I can tell you that it isn't um, <laughs> and so that was sort of an interesting place to get to and then I think 4,000 Weeks really is the book I wanted to write sort of after that journey and and trying to say something concrete about kind of building a meaningful life in the absence of these kind of easy solutions I don't know yeah. that's my thought how about you? Mm. Yeah, well, I think I think you've mentioned that you started out in about 2006. At that time, I was the editor of Cosmo. So I was editing a Bible of self-help stuff and a whole, selling a whole lot of stuff to young women that they really didn't need. Um, that was my introduction, but I got very unwell and I did what I'm sure many of the listeners would have done is take off into the forest and live in an army shed on my own um, in an effort to get better. And the wellness sphere was starting to emerge. So I had this wonderful idea as a journalist like yourself of pitching a column where I wrote about different ways to get well in order to heal myself. Um, it was sort of a, it was the smartest career move I've ever made, to be honest. Um, now this was in about 2009. 2010 at this stage and I went on a similar journey I remember reading some of your columns we were writing about some of the similar trends and themes and hacks and advice and you know interviewing similar people but eventually um I stumbled across well I was out of a out of a topic for one particular week and I figured I'd give quitting sugar a go and um I researched it for a number of weeks. I gave it a go, tested it on myself, and it had profound effects. So I started, Twitter had just been invented, um, and I started tweeting about it. I started blogging about it. I'd written a column about it, and it got lots and lots of interest. And as I was doing this, the science was emerging. I started attending conferences. There was also Goop, you know, Goop had sort of established around about this time. Um, anyway, the column was called This Week I dot, 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 and, you know, I would meditate with the Dalai Lama or whatever it would be. Um, this Week I Quit Sugar, and so that became the I Quit Sugar movement. It was an e-book and then it became a print book and it just kept going and going and, and going. But what was interesting, Oliver, is that I witnessed the way that this self-help wellness movement grew in tandem with um, social media. 
you know, Twitter was invented. And then, of course, there was Instagram, Facebook, the whole thing uh, quite some time later. And that brought, you know, a commerciality to it all. Um, it also brought a whole heap of wellness warriors, many of whom were followers of mine, uh, you know, in the early years. These were women who were a lot younger than me, decided that that's, that was a career path for them. And you know, these are some of the people that ended up in a lot of trouble. Documentaries have been made about them in, in several cases, two women died from uh, the, their own advice, which was mm. highly medically irresponsible. Um, yeah, so my scepticism probably grew as I witnessed what was happening to this space and also how much of the world was um, handing over agency to these so-called experts that had these platforms on social media. So I in many ways, I created a bit of a beast and I also was part of it in real time. Um, yeah. yeah, it was an interesting time and it's also interesting to exist in it now. A bit like yourself, I've, I've written books more recently that try to bring it all together because, of course, I think we do need wisdom and we do need guidance, um, but it needs to be quite tailored. But look, in terms of your scepticism, Oliver, um, I'd really love you to sort of outline what what kind of triggered your scepticism? You did say that some of it did work and some I know that you're a fan of the Pomodoro technique, as am I, um, for, for getting writing done. But, yeah, what was your scepticism? What was your deep-rooted concern? Well, it's interesting. I feel like I, I mean, I will answer that question, but maybe in a roundabout way because you're really bringing my attention to a slight difference in maybe the domains that we've been focusing on because one of the things that I thought was so great about what happened in the years after I began that column certainly not as a result of me writing the column but just in the changes in the culture was this kind of democratization of um advice when it came to things like how to construct a meaningful life how to think about handling overwhelm how to think about organizing your time and using your time um there was a sort of a, there has been a kind of a return to a kind of amateur involvement in the very best sense that in many ways sort of reflects to some extent how philosophy was conducted in the ancient world and things like that. That's um, a good point. Uh, mm. I have, you know, of course there were a million, you know, medium posts around sort of 2010 or 2012 of, of um, just sort of random entrepreneurs claiming that the way they happened to run their morning routines uh, was the right way for everybody. And it was sometimes a bit silly but but there was inspiration there and their ideas weren't worse than than other people's and i was always pretty skeptical of the idea that um very sort of narrowly conceived social psychology experiments uh were the were the main way to prove how people actually related best to their time and to happiness and i would i would often use those kinds of studies in my column as a jumping off point and then just completely abandon the question of whether the study was any good so in a way Though I should probably have written about this more, I did feel slightly vindicated when it turned out that like half of those social psychology studies were in fact rubbish and had failed to to replicate. But but you're talking about the application of this amateur spirit. Maybe it's just a question of a different domain. Maybe you just can't do that with nutrition and uh, physical fitness. Maybe it's just fundamentally uh, different in in certain ways because you, because of course what you're bringing up. Uh, speaks to the whole kind of decline of trust in experts and it's all obviously that's become part of the, the sort of wellness to conspiracy theory pipeline is a is a thing now um and so actually the thing that i originally rather liked about what was happening to uh self-help in a broad sense around that time i can see very easily how it would be a very bad thing if it turned into sort of making claims about uh diet you know forms of dietary advice that were just that were just not not real um in order to give you some sort of concrete thing about what i'm actually skeptical about i mean there's one thing which i think we can talk about uh is the sort of political side of this the idea that that self-help as an idea remains very sort of individualistic it has this implication that uh you know uh, you can positive think your way out of the situation you're in. You probably negative thought your way into it. And therefore, um, broader societal systemic things don't need to be addressed. Um, that's, a, that's a viewpoint that has been sort of challenged in the last sort of three or four years, much more 
strongly than than ever before and i think it has always been a real a real issue uh in in self-help going back a long way this notion that you're responsible for everything that happens to you in in the sense of blame i think there is some sense in which it might make sense to talk about being responsible but but not um Mm. but not 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 the cause you know this idea that if you're poor it must be your fault absolutely absurd and very sort of it's a very american ideological idea so there's that the other part of it though that i've become more sensitized to recently and was probably more of a you know victim of myself i don't think i ever started becoming a sort of hyper individualistic libertarian person politically speaking as a result of um of self help but the other part of it is that a lot of it is actually gets used by individual people as a kind of avoidance so that the advice that we go out and seek is not the advice that we need to hear um the the changes that we uh need to make in our lives and that you will eventually if you sort of embark on a lifelong quest of trying to figure these things out and reading lots of older books and spiritual books and going to therapy and all the rest of it you may hopefully happen upon it's often not the stuff that you're just going to get if you're marketed at directly um by the most popular self-help authors so the classic sort of example of this would be somebody who is in the market for business books telling them how to cram more and more tasks into their day when actually you know their problem is that they're a workaholic and they need to look at what it is that they're avoiding emotionally by investing the whole of their uh, energy and attention into mm. their into their work it's just one example among many I, I came to realize that actually pretty much it's almost a rule of this field that um that the advice that you really like and get excited about and want to implement immediately is is probably just enabling something negative in you and the advice yeah. that strikes you as confronting and annoying and makes you feel like it would be really awkward and tedious to have to go think about it anymore is very possibly the advice that you need so i'm actually skeptical just on that solo level as it were that individual yeah. level about how it's how the standard marketing of right because what you because if all you're doing is trying to sell somebody something um then you, you're just going to do whatever it is that they think they need in the most immediate sense and that might not be that might well not be the case i think um i think that's probably where we intersect quite heavily um i feel that the self-help wellness realm um, has been co-opted by the neoliberal imperative and what we're really seeing is sort of almost a reversal of what philosophical wisdoms and spiritual guidance has always been about so we are inherently quite individualistic and selfish. It's part of a survival mechanism. Um, however, you know, we don't have fangs uh, to defend ourselves. We're not particularly fast runners. Uh, we don't have a sting in our tail. What we've always had is this ability to communicate and form community and tribes. And it's through that that we've been able to defend ourselves and rise to the top of the food chain, et cetera, et cetera. But what spirituality, what religions have done, what moral leaders, what philosophers have done, what they've done is they have ensured that that individualism doesn't run too rampant and we swing the pendulum back towards community because we need that nice sweet spot to be able to survive and flourish as humans. And that has always served, you know, a very important purpose and it's worked particularly well you know, in the 1970s and 1980s, um, the neoliberal system, uh, you know, sort of what David Brooks refers to as uh, got rid of these sort of moral guardrails. And he's referring to things like community groups, even, uh, you know, church, uh, we're talking the scout movement, um, trade unions, whatever it might be, these groups that served that purpose were essentially removed from our culture. Um, and I sort of, I write about it in my book, um, as you might recall, I refer to them as, you know, we got rid of the moral umpires of the footy field of life. And so we're now running around playing a game with no rules and no umpires, which is really not a hell of a lot of fun. And how that manifests, I think, in the self-help realm, and it speaks to what you were referring to, is that we cherry pick the information that's nice and kind of cosy. 
So um, we go through the various Buddhist traditions, whatever it might be, um, the Stoic tradition, and we pull out the bits that are nice. And I call it spiritualism light, you know, the diet version of, of this. And, um, and it was, you know, spiritualism light, self-help light, diet, the diet version. And what that looks like is we do the yoga classes, we do the sound baths, we do the bits of advice that reinforce the things that we are already doing, and we leave out the stuff that the spiritualists said was fundamentally important and that was sacrifice and sitting in discomfort to build a resilience to get us through potential hard times down the track that's what these traditions were about and we've cherry-picked the bejesus out of these things and it's been awfully pleasant but it has left us feeling fairly unnourished, but also has led to, as you alluded to earlier, things like these information silos, um, you know, this correlation with conspiracy <clears throat> theories, the wellness mm -hmm. realm and, um, you know, very much crosses over with uh, people who got caught up in COVID conspiracy theories, but also more contemporary um, conspiracy theories. And you can see how it can happen. It's this idea of the sovereign being as most, you know, as, as all important. Um, it's 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 kind of the the extension of all this. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche predicted all of this many, many years ago when industrialization, you know, first hit Europe. Um, he sort of predicted this. So that's kind of my beef with it. Um, as well as this idea of uh this these self-help movements over the last 10, 20 years have have been about removing us from discomfort, cocooning us from discomfort. And What's really interesting is that technological advancements over the last 30 to 40 years have, or 70 90% of them, I think I've got that right, have been about removing discomfort. So we don't even have to sit in the uncertainty of wondering when our pizza is going to arrive because there's an orb on the app that tells us exactly where it is in the neighbourhood. Um, we don't have to wonder whether, you know, what the capital of Afghanistan might be, whatever it is, because we can go and Google it. We don't have to wait for anything. We don't have to sit in uncertainty, um, in doubt, in, in an unknownness. And, you know, I often say this, we have cocooned ourselves from everything except for real life. And so it actually mm. goes against what self-help is meant to be about. It's actually leaving us incredibly vulnerable. Yeah, I think all that's a really interesting way of putting it. I guess where it connects with what I've written about, certainly in, the most recent, um, in my most recent book, is that uh, we're sort of very, um, sort of a good rule of thumb for understanding where we go wrong when it comes to finding happiness and community and spending our lives doing meaningful, productive things is that we sort of, we, we really uh, hate to be brought into encounters with our limitations, with our finiteness, right? So I, yes. the, the, very often that is to do with, with comfort and wanting to avoid discomfort. It, it, it can sometimes be, um, more to do with, uh, it's yeah it's a kind of it's a kind of uh, a quest for a kind of invulnerability so that i'm just the reason i'm pausing before i just completely endorse the idea that we're that that when self-help goes wrong it leads us just towards happy peaceful comforting things is that there is also and i know you want to talk about this there is also this kind of strand somewhat more marketed at men for obvious reasons very much working on the sort of rediscovery and repackaging of of stoic philosophy um where actually it's all about being quite um bold and fighty and and sort of kicking life in the ass and you know whatever i don't know but you know we're punching life in the face um and 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 it's all about sort of uh bringing some sort of warlike uh, uh status to, to achievement and personal development and what's so interesting to me about that although i think there is some merit in it and some merit in the stoic tradition is that actually that is also the comfortable option in a specific way for the people to whom it's marketed at and you know i i speak from some sort of personal identification with that i think right this idea that you might be able to use stoic thinking or any other form of uh um sort of modification of your habits or your thinking to not feel emotional vulnerability to to be sort of so uh strong in the world 
that you wouldn't have to worry about the fact that you mm. you wouldn't have to worry about you wouldn't have to feel anxiety you wouldn't have to worry about where things are what's going to happen next or whether you have have what it takes to do the things that you think you need to do so there's a kind of a there's a version of this that is much less about sound baths and um child's pose and much more about uh kind of uh you know fighting to win the game of of life and actually it mm. ends up being the same thing which is uh in its bad version so it ends up being the same thing which is this sort of horror of acknowledging that we're finite finite in terms of how much time we have which is the big focus of four thousand weeks but also finite in terms of how uh, much control we have over how life unfolds how much we can do alone uh without doing it in in community so um yeah, yeah I mean, but in a way just sorry oh just super quickly i mean in a way i just mm. feel like this is it just mirrors everything it just self-help just mirrors society right we there we generally would prefer not to uh confront scary things and uh mm. occasionally we'll realize that actually that's what we need to do Sorry. Yeah, the Stobro movement, as I've referred to it, and I think maybe some others have, have as well, um, emerged more recently. Broicism, so, that's what I have. Broicism, that's it. Um, you know, I think it's emerged more recently and I think it's, uh, you know, it's all the ice bath stuff and, and it really is, um, for the way I see it, is a response to, again, the uncertainty, the doubt, the discomfort that the world is presenting. Um, and I want to move on to where we're at now um, off the back of that because I think it's a very male or masculine interpretation of uh, trying to regain control and cherry picking the stuff that reinforces the messaging that feels safe. And for, mm -hmm. for men who are facing a really rough time at the moment um, with where their gender stereotypes are sitting, um, stoicism seems to provide a nice framework. It's a very watertight framework. Um, and when, particularly when you cherry pick the bits out that suit your agenda, and this has been a criticism um, of a lot of stoic professors when they witness, you know, some of these stobros out there, um, you know, that, that they haven't embraced a really central tenet of, of stoicism, and that is this idea of vulnerability. Um, and we can see why a lot of men today would want to conveniently shut that piece of the picture out. But I'll just um, I'll just remind everybody listening um, in the audience to keep asking questions. Um, and just to remind you, you can ask a question by clicking on the Ask Question button, which is under the video screen. You can see it pretty clearly there. Put your name in there if you'd like to. You don't have to, and then press send, and we'll get to those at the end. Okay, so let's move on, Oliver, to where we are at now. I think the world is in desperate need of guidance. Um, we're in a time of incredible flux, and in such times throughout history, we've generally needed some great uprising of philosophical thought. It might be a religious movement. It might be um, it might be a, a philosophical movement, but. The, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the neoliberal imperative has meant that a lot of the, the, those moral guardrails have been removed. We just don't have them in place. There is not a healthy respect for philosophical discussion. I mean, it is happening, and I take your point, that the self-help space is probably the only space that brings this to the mainstream. Um, it does do it in, in, you know, bits and pieces in a very diet version. But um, in terms of institutions that are able to steer a society through difficult times, it's really hard to point to where they are right now. And we need them more than ever as the climate crisis gets worse, as we see, you know, the AI threat, we see nuclear threat dialing up um, and, you know, bifurcation, fragmentation, polarisation, the whole thing. And I'm wondering, is this why you decided to write 4,000 Weeks? Do you feel that the world needs a simple piece of guidance? Um, <laughs> and then for those who haven't read it, um, could you just give a bit of a, a, an elevator pitch description of the book? Sure. Uh, let me do that bit first before denying that I wrote it uh, <laughs> okay. because the world needed to uh, solve the world's uh, problems. Uh, yeah, right. The world needed to hear my wisdom. <laughs> that is not how it works for me. And I think there's an interesting uh, topic there actually about books and writing probably. Um, uh, yeah. So the this is basically a little bit uh, prefaced. I sort of got at this in my previous uh, contribution, but uh, yeah, it's it's a it's about. This the, the the notion that we have a very finite amount of time, four thousand weeks is very roughly and rounded down to get a 
good round number, the amount of average lifespan in the developed world. Um, we also have very little control over how that life unfolds. And I think that most of the ways that we go wrong in managing our relationship with time, making the most of our time, both in sort of personal and professional sense and as citizens of the world, comes from trying not to confront those truths. And um, and so actually, I make the case that it's incredibly liberating to realize that there will always be too much to do, that there will be more genuinely good causes than anyone can be expected to care about, um, that you will never feel like you're ready to launch the next phase of your life, whatever it might be. And so actually, once you sort of give up on hoping to achieve that kind of mastery or control over time, you're actually freed up to um, actually do stuff and make a difference in your life, other people's lives, in the world, um, because you're no longer seeking essentially to become a god with respect to your time. You can actually be more wholeheartedly human. Um, I know about you, and I'll be fascinated in your answer to this question, but I do not write books because... Uh, I think I've figured the world out and other people need to uh, need to hear it. And it's going to sound like false modesty or something. But um, I, I write books as part of a kind of therapeutic process for myself that has the form of sort of writing the advice that I need to hear. So not only I'm trying to write a book that I think should exist, uh, which is a pretty common thing that you hear people say, right? They, they looked for a book and they couldn't find it, so they wrote it themselves. But also, and I think this is probably pretty common, although not always acknowledged, also, it's the advice I could do with following, right? It's like, um, <laughs> it, it, it's a question of what I am struggling with and what people I arrogantly think broadly enough like me are struggling with and trying to work out through the process of writing the book, um, uh, you know, what the right direction is in which to move on all that stuff. So it's kind of awkward because sometimes people read my books and then get in touch with me and you can tell from how they're emailing that they think that, um, that I've, that I now live uh, a life perfectly in tune with the sort of vision of how to live that, that is in the book. And like, I never actually make that claim because it's totally not true. And um, it's like, it wouldn't be a topic of interest to me unless it was something that I found quite, quite difficult and challenging. So the book is very much like a partner in that um, process. And uh, whenever I sort of get blocked and can't write anymore, I wander around smiting my forehead for a long time. And then I realize every time it takes, I have to remember it again, it always takes weeks seemingly, but that actually the way to get on track again is to, is to ask, what it is at this very moment that I'm sort of struggling with myself and to, and that's something that gives the book, um, uh, life, I, I hope, and seems to have given the book life for enough, uh, other people. So it's, it, that's a really, that that's how it works for me. The other thing that I find more and more, and I don't know if this is a bit defeatist maybe, but it does seem to be the, um, the, 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 the thing that means the most to people when they respond well to the book or to the other things that I write, it's not that I offer them some great solution that they hadn't thought of before. It is that sense of a share of the fact that we're all in the same boat and that behind our facades, we're experiencing a lot of the same things. Um, quite often I'm talking about all the nice feedback, which is kind of, I don't mean to brag, but it's like it's a big important part of it for me is 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 getting this kind of resonance with people. And one of the things that people say a lot is like, this is what I've always thought, or you've put into words something that I knew but had not put into words. And, you know, you might think that was a bit of a, a sort of um double-edged compliment because it's sort of like, well, I already knew this. What are you telling me? But I think it's actually the the mm. that's the moment of connection because actually yeah. what there you can't learn something new about the meaning of life from some guy writing a book. What you can do is have ideas that were just below the surface brought into the to the surface and feel that kind of oh someone else understands because actually it's just lots of us. So I'm just trying to get more honest, I guess, as I as I write these 
books. And I'm sure I'm mainly not doing. I was accused rightly by somebody else in a podcast interview a while ago of keeping most of my personal life out of my books. And that's true. And I think it's because why would anyone be interested? But actually, it probably is because I I am inhibited in some way. So, you know, and, which is mm. not to say my next book will be a sort of tediously uh, uh, transparent memoir or something. But you know what? It's that, well, that, you are British, yeah. even if you exactly. lived in, in, in the uh, end, America right, for a yes. long time. Yeah. End, you, uh, you have to be who you are. Yeah. Well, we've, we've somehow segued into, into how we write books, but it's probably relevant. I'll just chime in there. Um, I work in a similar way, um, except that I'm out in the world. I'm a 50-year-old single woman who has lived on the road for 15 years or longer with one bag of belongings, and um, I'm extremely online. So I often develop a book idea based on what I sort of refer to as smelling the pain in the zeitgeist. I can feel the pain and I live it and I breathe it and I ache for it and I set off on a journey and I write the book in real time. So my most recent book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, I was trying to fathom how the hell we could find a meaningful, joyful path through you know, excuse the language, but the clusterfuck of the climate crisis, the fragmentation that was happening, Me Too was happening at the same time, um, Black Lives Matter was happening, and all around me there were fires. Then, of course, COVID hit. So all of this was happening and I was trying to fathom a path through it all and so I literally set off for three years and, and my background as a women's magazine editor meant that um, I knew I needed to add a sexy layer to this thing. So I set off around the world and hiked in the footsteps of philosophers, thinkers who had felt this pain or smelt this pain before. And so I do, uh, I think it's about 20 hikes around the world to arrive at something that resembled a thesis. In the meantime, or along the way, I appreciated, found, you know, de de delved into the science on uh, how walking in nature, there's 42,000 studies that show it can actually bring us back into the things that really matter to us and, you know, identified that it was a disconnect, an absolutely profound um, moral loneliness that we were feeling, not an aloneness from each other, but um, an aloneness from a relationship with ourselves, but also with the, what I, I refer to as the moral matrix of life. And the Greeks called that acedia. Uh, acedia is like a, a listless slothfulness. Um, and, and yeah, so reconnecting with this one wild and precious life, and yes, Mary Oliver's estate gave me permission to use that line in this book. Um, reconnecting with us actually puts us in a position to get very clear on how we wish to save it and gives us that fired up energy to do mm. it. So I, I, I do it for a similar reason, but I guess in some ways I had been feeling that the world was missing guidance. Um, my scepticism in and around self-help had to do a little bit of a full circle. And I think a little bit like yourself, I my experience from pulling apart all of these ideas over my career, in, you start to see the things that really work, that stand the test of time, that actually uh, engage humanity at a very visceral level. And I know from reading your book and, and talking to a lot of people about your book and interviewing you on my podcast about it, um, I think that that's sort of almost what you do as well. You bring together the, the thinking that makes a hell of a lot of sense after all of the, the guff that's that's been around there. I'm wondering if, I mean, you mentioned the feedback that you've received from readers, but I'm wondering if you could talk to any Anything that you've learned about where we are at right now? A bit like you, the world has even shifted once again. Um, I think things are feeling particularly perilous. Um, you know, it's been an incredible summer here in Australia, my homeland. Fires are already starting at the beginning of spring. Moving into summer, it's going to be a hellscape. Um, so I'm thinking that we are going to need something more than flimsy uh, spirituality light, self-help light in coming years. Um, what are some things that you are exploring or have observed from, well, since your book came out that you think are going to be really important for the listeners to think about? It's mm, interesting. I, I guess that, yeah, I mean, I guess one of the places where this intersects with you, you want to jump back in because I think this is really your your territory, but at, at the, it is at the end of my book and then it's been part of the conversation since then is that there is something 
ill-suited about the idea of hope. Uh, you know, I think certainly in the context of uh, the climate, but and other, but also just as a general kind of orientation, there's there's something sort of flimsy and unconvincing about the idea that we should all be very optimistic about the future. There is actually, you know, there are always those people. I wrote a long Guardian piece about them at one point who are writing the books and making communicating the fact that there are an enormous number of things that are going well and getting better. I don't think that's false. Uh, but that as a sort of spiritual, psychological outlook, we need something other than um, just sort of constantly buoying ourselves up with the idea that it's going to, that things are going to necessarily get get better. And I actually think that that can be a very liberating move to make. I was really impacted a long time ago by an essay that uh, the environmentalist Derek Jensen wrote called Beyond Hope, which um, is all about how easy it is to sort of give power away when you are um, invested in feeling in feeling hopeful about things and that you don't really need uh, hope. People talk as if we need to be hopeful, otherwise we might all just sort of sink into depression. But, but that isn't the way we already relate to some of the most meaningful things in our lives. If you're a parent, you don't only care for your child because you hope that they'll turn out to be really successful in their adulthood, right? That would be absurd or almost sort of psychopathic to, to, to make it conditional on their dream. You, you do it because you love them. And that's true of all kinds of uh, love, really. And and Jensen was making that that point. I think the other part of this that sort of connects to my interests in sort of being in our finiteness is that um, there's a kind of person who is not complacent about uh, what's happening to the world who is deeply uh you know well motivated by wanting to uh make things better but who is in a different kind of denial of their finitude and sort of works themselves up into a paralyzed state by trying to get their arms around it all and 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 solve everything. So you, I often... you raise a really good point there, and I wanted to bring it up earlier, and I completely forgot about it. So thank you for the reminder. I mean, we should bear in mind that the term self-help or self-care, I should say, actually emerged in the 1970s. The black activist Audre Lorde um, first, you know, uttered the word self-care, and it was in reference to the the women, the black women who were on the front line fighting for for pretty fundamental stuff, and as you point to, were exhausting themselves absolutely, you know, working themselves to the bone. Then they had to go home and feed children, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so she would say, you need to do the self-care. You need to go home, have a bath, feed yourself properly, so that you can come back. To the front lines and continue the fight um, and you know as part of our spiritual light cherry picking process we have done the self-care we go home have the bath light the candles however we don't then use that rejuvenated energy to go out and fight for this one wild and precious life and so once again we've kind of co-opted a term and just chosen the bits that are conveniently comfortable and it's not serving us it's not serving us and i suppose Speak, picking up on your idea of hope, I take what you're saying, but I've actually just started writing my next book, a very painful process. I know you're at the end of writing one of your books. Of your next no, book, so. middle. No, horrible middle. middle. Anyway, I think you're meant to be at the end, but Most anyway, people. I won't remind yeah. you of that. Um, yeah, I'm meant to be. I'm meant to be in, well into the writing processes, but it's been two years of wrestling with the research. But I do start off the first chapter, and I share it with my Substack um, community, which is where I'm sharing sort of these chapters as I write them. There's a really good idea for you, Oliver. That'll get you to the deadline. It's <laughs> a community who are expecting a, an instalment each week. But I started off by saying I no longer have hope, and I've been a climate activist most of my life. I've been an activist of, you know, one sort or another, um, you know, pick a cause. I, I, I go out there and wear the T-shirt and, and try to educate people on it. I spend a lot of my time doing it. Um, but I no longer have hope because I do feel that hope, you know, there's a term out there refer, it, it's called hopioid. It has actually become something that when we are, in fact, trying to fight for change, which is, I think, where many of us are feeling we need to be at at the moment, um, we can actually slip into this idea of hope 
And what's happening, I'm seeing in the climate movement, but also in other movements, is that what we're hoping for is not coming to fruition. So we're not bringing down carbon emissions. Governments aren't changing their policies in time. Big corporations are reneging on their um, their earlier commitments. And so that t- sends us into a worse despair. So I'm positing this idea that we should be working to something far more stoic in many ways, and that is truth, like radical truth. And that you know, takes us full circle back to this idea of the wisdom of sitting in discomfort. And your book, you know, talks about this so much about confronting our finiteness. And, you know, uh, there have been dozens, if not hundreds of philosophers and spiritualists over the years that have pointed out that to truly live, we need to confront death. And that's where we're at in the world today. You know, the predictions are looking ghastly. Um, You know, this is sort of the space I'm in at the moment. And so, you know, the self-help techniques of recent yore are not working. However, wonderfully, incredibly, um, some of the self-help wisdoms of many hundreds and thousands of years ago are actually, I think, surfacing once again. Mm. But only to the extent that we take the full package, we don't cherry pick and we absorb the lessons around sitting in discomfort because there's a hell of a lot of discomfort that's going to come our way in, well, we're in it now, but in coming years and in the coming decade or two. Um, And the sooner we can do that and educate and inspire our children to be able to sit in that and to adopt some of these approaches to life rather than thinking that, you know, Uh, my child comes home and has done all these wonderful activities at school about recycling and, you know, conserving water and things like that. You know, I've got great hope in this next generation. And I have to say this to them, Oliver, well, listen, first of all, your child's eight. They're not going to be able to vote for another 10 years. So there's that. They're not going to be able to make a big impact. Secondly, children should be able to get on with their lives being children. And thirdly, the change needs to be happening now. (laughs) Eight years is is you know or 10 years is is um where we're going to have missed the opportunity um so that's my position on hope um we do have a we probably only have one or two minutes before we've got to cross over to questions um what i might ask which i think people would be really fascinated to know oliver and we'll have to keep it to sort of a quick 30 second answer each perhaps we could share what self-help technique we actually do use in our day-to-day life? What have you taken from all of these years of researching this space? Um, What have you taken away and you actually use daily? I mean, I'm in a constant state of flux, right? It's not that I've tested them all and abandoned them all. It's that I pick them and use them and then they stop being useful and then I move on to other ones. And making my peace with that was actually really helpful, uh, giving up this notion that I was looking for one system. Uh, If there has been a continuity like all the way through, I think it is uh, morning pages. It's been a bit disrupted here and there by a newborn and things like that. But but basically, uh, I've written three sides of stream of consciousness, nothingness, whatever is Mm. coming out. Uh, first thing with coffee for a very long time now. Um, totally unstructured, not not an exercise in creative writing, usually more kind of me working out my random problems, but uh, and sometimes absolutely substance-free, but incredibly useful, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, I do use the Pomodoro technique, an app, um, the app version of it. I use that when things are really <laughs> stuck, um, but I also meditate every day. It's sort of non-negotiable for me. And I should probably add, I also don't eat sugar. So I have stuck to that in case anybody's wondering. Now, we do need to cross to questions. Um, I think we've got probably, we've got five questions here. We may have time for an extra one if anyone is wanting to post a last minute one. Um, Oliver, this question's for you. Your book talks about humans having a lifespan of 4,000 weeks. Are perceptions about time and how we manage it differently over time and in other cultures? So are they different in different cultures? And that's from Sally. Yeah, I sort of focus in the book on difference over on a sort of longitudinal way as opposed to a cross-cultural way, although this is true in, in both those those senses. There are definitely, uh, there have definitely been many, many uh, uh, people at many times in history, and there are some in some cultural contexts today who I would describe as sort of having a less alienated relationship with time. It is less a case that um, 
that there's the, themselves and then there's time and they feel sort of like we do all the time, you know, hounded by time or trying to fight time, trying to wrangle or wrestle or manage time so that we're in control of it. There is the alternative, the one that anthropologists call task orientation, where the rhythms of your day just emerge from what you're doing. It tends to be uh, in places and at times in history where people have been living very close to the land in terms of their in terms of what their their work is, um, and uh, there are all sorts of others. I, I think the really important point about that is not so much that we should be like somebody else or that somebody's got it right, but just that it is it is negotiable, right? This this notion that we have that like time is this very linear, very mathematically regular thing that it is our job to try to squeeze the most out of. Like that's a set of beliefs. And you might have to follow them a lot of the time. You might want to follow them a lot of the time, but there's still a set of beliefs which gives a certain kind of psychological room for maneuver because it means that you don't have to be completely wedded to this idea and that there are all sorts of things to do in the world that actually it, it's helpful to be in a different frame mm. of mind about time and to think about it as as just a sort of... Uh, the medium in which life unfolds rather than this yeah. thing you have to be constantly battling. Yeah, yeah, that's a lovely reframing. Um, okay, the next question is from Amal and it's for me. Sarah, your book is described as a guide to living a wilder, more connected life. Can you explain exactly what you mean by wilder? I can, Amal. Um, so I suppose it speaks to a little bit of what you just referred to there, Oliver, and that's this idea of being connected to the rhythms of life. So um, that's one way um, that uh, that point can be interpreted. And so hiking, and I talk through the rhythms of hiking, I talk about the science of how it is that it makes us feel so good, how it leads to profound and discerning thought. And so, you know, all kinds of philosophers, poets, scientists hike to get their best ideas and there's lots of stories that I relay in the book about that and it it fits to this idea that you know in one of my favorite studies there's 42,000 of them I read quite a number of them you don't have to read them because I paraphrase them in my book um, but you know for example um, the patternings in nature work to fractals repeated patterns that form a spiral or the the fronds of a fern or the petals of a flower and our retinas are also made up of fractal patternings. And when we see these patterns in nature, there's this congruence, there's this recognition, this plugging in. I almost describe it as that feeling with a MacBook, you know, when you get that suctiony feeling. I think it's a model or three uh, ago um, where it had that lovely kind of connected, sucked in feeling. Um, but I also talk about it from a spiritual perspective. And I reference the incredible American Buddhist nun, Pima Chodron, who talks about going to your edge. She's not the only person to talk about it but I found her work in the book um, when things fall apart to be really really helpful and she talks about going to our edge is going to that point where we do feel deeply uncomfortable and at that point instead of resisting and running we stay we stay at this edge and it's at this edge that the breezes are fresh and alive we come online we have to fend I describe it as almost like being in a tree we can either hang around around the trunk cocoon ourselves or we can go out to the outer limbs where it is more precarious it feels edgy it is uncomfortable but we get the perspective. We can see that we are in a tree and there are other people out there. I'm not going to run this metaphor too far. Um, but, yeah, I think it is about exploring these ways of being that are very much fundamental to the way humans have always operated and which we've, we've just simply forgotten. And when we go to the edge, when we go into nature, we don't have to do much more than just do that and sit in it and the magic then happens. The wildness returns. We remember. Um, people say to me, what's, you know, how does hiking, what do I need to do to get hiking right? And I'm like, just go and start walking in nature. That's it. It will do its thing. It works no matter what. Um, so I hope that answers your question, Amal. Okay. This uh, this person hasn't given their name, but they've asked, how do we find the balance between the drive for perfectionism and the acceptance that we and life will always be imperfect? Oliver, do you want to have a crack at that one? Uh, yeah, I don't need to manage the drive for perfectionism. That's just like an annoyingly unavoidable thing that I have. So all my effort is is engaged in the in the opposite uh, direction. 
I I used to think a long time ago that perfectionism was sort of a double-edged sword, right? It's kind of nice to be seeking uh, perfect results, but you need to be careful that you don't go too far with it. And now I sort of feel that it's basically all a problem or it's another, or perfectionism is another word for uh, the things that, uh, that, that cause me to get in my own way when it comes to being somewhat productive and, and effective in the world. So um, I think it's very personality dependent, but I think if you're the kind of person who, uh, who is uh, afflicted by some version of, of perfectionism, like it's just an endless process of reminding yourself that perfectionism, perfect results don't exist in the real world, right? It's a, it's a, it's not that you, it's not that you fell short. It's that you're trying to reach a standard that cannot exist. Um, and that, uh, you know, the real lesson to perfect perfectionists need to learn, I think is not that you could fail or you could screw up, but that you already have, right? The ship has already sailed. If you were trying to live a perfect life, that's over. So you can let go of it, which is brilliant. Mm, and now you can mm, just I like, like that. Now you can just do some stuff instead. Yeah, no, I like that. I have um you, you I, I think it's all very well to say, oh, just don't worry about being perfect. But I think you do need to have some like little mantras or little wisdoms that work for you. And I'll share some for whoever asked the question that I use and find helpful. So um I had a meditation teacher who used to witness my tight grip on life and uh you know people who write books tend to be a types people who then sign on to uh listen to a podcast in their evening tend to be a types as well so we will all relate to this but i grip really hard and that's when it's sort of like i'm blocking the flow of life when i do that i'm trying too hard i'm emailing to people too many people i'm just pushing and it blocks the natural flow and my meditation teacher tim used to say to me sarah stop thinking that this is where the story ends. Keep the camera rolling. And that did the similar thing to me. It actually freed me up and opened thing, expanded my perception of how life actually works and my place in it. And I realized it doesn't stop here. It can go a bit wobbly, but the story hasn't ended. It just keep the camera rolling, show up, turn up, don't be defeated by it. And um, just step into the next chapter of it all. Um, he, the same person used to also say to me, take your filthy mitts off it. And uh, that works for me as well when I'm gripping too tightly and being too perfectionist. But look, you know, I think it's about pulsing. Um, I need to make friends with something before I can release my grip on something. So I can see that my perfectionism has really worked for me at times. And once I accept it and see it as a beautiful thing, the title of my previous book was First We Make the Beast Beautiful. When you make a beastful thing, in that case, it was uh, anxiety, beautiful, we can then start to modulate and manage that difficult that difficult entity. Okay, we've got a couple minutes left. I will, we've got another two questions. We'll see if we can get them both in. We may not. Both of you have written impactful books. Which came first, the actual practice of living in a new way or the book writing process itself? Oliver. Uh, I'll keep this really quick because A, we're running out of time and B, I think I sort of answered this before. Um, these are mm. not separable. The book writing is the process of living in a new way or trying to uh, live into it. What tends to happen with me is I, I'm really good on the um, intellectual insights. I figure things out on an intellectual level really quickly. Uh, I come up with a sort of high concept for a book or something like that pretty easily. And then it takes forever to kind of follow through the actual embodied real uh, um, consequences of that sort of insight. Um, and so that is what the book writing is. It's just the same thing. Mm, um, I would say pretty much the same thing. And look, we've got two minutes, so I'm going to answer the last question so that that person doesn't feel uh, left behind. Do each of you have one top tip for being just a bit happier? And that's from Jasper. Thank you, Jasper. Uh, yeah, I, I would say keep the camera rolling. I, I very much operate to that. Um, I also switch. I have this other little mantra that I that I work to and that is that often when I'm anxious and it's no big secret I have bipolar and I also have obsessive compulsive disorder so perfectionism is something I'm very familiar with but um, when I'm feeling anxious and it can get debilitating at time when I can I try to say to myself 
you know what, this is just me being excited. Um, <laughs> excitement and anxiety trigger um, responses in, the, in a very similar part of the brain. And it's a very similar response. And our brains, if we reframe it, can actually start to respond to things differently with the language that we use. It works for me. Um, and so whenever I'm I'm having a bit of a tough time. I do reframe things as this is exciting. Um, I've also become a yes person. This sounds so Pollyanna-ish and cliched, but um, I have an autoimmune disease, which renders me absolutely exhausted at times and depressed um, and anxious. And um, I can be very, very tired and it'd be very easy to say no to things. Um, I try to work to a default of yes, where the invite comes from somebody who genuinely wants me to be there. Um, so that would be it. And also walking in nature, it just works. Like I say, just start walking and it does its magic. I skip through the forest. I am. I had to imagine how many people have seen the crazy lady dancing in the forest. I'll put music on and I get to a spot and I dance. And um, it's a very, very happy, happy experience. As I say, just, just start walking, just start walking in the park, wherever it might be, and it will do its work for you. You don't have to think about it. Okay, we're finished right on time. Um, Oliver, my massive thanks to you um, and to our audience for your questions and for taking part this yeah, evening. Thanks, um, and to, of course, Intelligence Squared for, ho uh, for hosting this podcast. Very much appreciate it. And I've enjoyed it. And uh, Oliver, I'm sure we'll cross paths again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody, for, uh, for being part of it. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.